the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter, and today is not your normal episode of The First Degree. We promised that we would bring you these updates for the Long Island serial killer, Gilgo Beach killer, Rex Yorman situation. So that is what we're doing. I apologize in advance for my sound. I'm in a hotel room in Chicago right now. We did not think we were going to be doing all of these real-time recordings. So please forgive me. We're usually perfectionists, but uh, let's get into the case. Lex, what's going on today? It has been one of the craziest weeks since we started doing the First Degree Podcast, I think. I mean, we had our meetup in New York and Jack and I woke up in a hotel room. We actually found out the news, I think the night before everybody else, because we had some insider info. Um, And I didn't sleep that night when somebody, it was Thursday night and a friend of ours told us what was about to happen. And as much as I was so happy to learn that, I wasn't sure if it was true. And then I didn't sleep all night. And then in the morning when we found out it was true, I don't know. The arrest, it's been mind-blowing. So it's been a crazy week. We haven't slept. And if you're listening to this, then you're probably expecting a traditional first-degree episode. But in light of these developments and in light of the months-long coverage we were already doing in conjunction with the Heavy Metal Project and our fundraiser and our episodes dedicated to the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer case, we're scrapping our normal shit and we are giving you an update episode things you need to know, anyone who doesn't want to feel like going through every single article. If you want to know the rundown, here is the place to do it. And for us, the timing is obviously incredible, shocking, all of it. Um, And when we came up with the concept for the Heavy Metal Project, we did so because when we did a Google search for news on the Long Island serial killer, they had been nothing since the previous October, which was 2022. So we were really trying to show, um, you know, we were trying to keep the interest going. We were trying to keep the victims' names in the news, but that's all changed now. Now this is national news. This is on every news station. And now if you're listening, you already know, 59-year-old Rex Hewerman has been taken into custody and charged with murdering Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, and Amberlynn Costello. And he is the main suspect in the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, although he's not yet facing direct charges in her case yet. But those we expect to see any any moment now. Right. And I feel like, you know, kind of going back to the timing of this just being so freaking crazy for us in general, because this has been like on the forefront of our minds for the past two and a half months, 10 weeks We ended our Long Island Serial Killer series on Friday, the day that it was announced that Rex Hurman was arrested. So it was just like the craziest sequence of events. We had just had our meetup in New York City, our first ever first degree meetup in New York City with all of our firsties. So it was the first time we got together with like all of our people and we were in New York City. You were going to Long Island that day anyways. Like the timing was just so fucking nuts when you think about it, you know? Yeah. And 
it is uh it is nuts and i was lucky enough to be able to drop everything and cancel most of my plans i have very understanding friends and family because i hadn't <laughs> been home to visit in a while and i was like sorry everyone i'll have to come back maybe in a month or something because this just took priority and i was able to go see people face to face jack was there for a lot of it we were able to be like kind of boots on the ground in a really important way so we have a ton of interesting information and insight to share with all of you today. Um, if you haven't listened to the Unraveled episode that I put out, definitely do that. That's a start. Yeah. Uh, but in this episode that we're doing here on The First Degree, we have a lot more control and we're going to be able to actually share a ton of information. We're going to be able to go off in several different directions and we're actually going to be able to bring you like news that broke today. Um, right. So yeah, I'm excited to bring you on this wild ride with us. Yeah. And I, I, we can kind of like get into the nitty gritty of things, talk about some TikToks, talk about some theories, some suspicions, like all that stuff that doesn't get, need to get uh, approved by a network. <laughs> right. Although, you know, that, that narrative storytelling, I mean, it really is. I love the way that episode turned out. I'm really proud of it. No, it was but, amazing. Yeah. I learned and, so much. I'm so glad. And you know, this, but this is going to be different. I mean, this is, we can go down some rabbit holes with you and talk to you like we're talking to each other because Jack and I have been swapping information, sending screenshots, sending texts like, oh my God, did you read this? I mean, since since Thursday. So we're yeah. really excited to just, you know, take you along. So we're going to kind of go over a few different things. Obviously, there is all the search warrants of all of his property, his phones, et cetera, et cetera. There's the bail application document that we both read through, so you don't have to. And we're going to kind of highlight the things that we found interesting or new evidence that we kind of didn't hear about when the news dropped on Friday, because there was a slew of just like crazy information that everybody was bombarded with on Friday. And now we've kind of found out some other different details. So we're just going to kind of go through everything and uh, you can learn along with us. Right. And we're going to be talking about who this monster actually is and what we can deduce about like the kind of psychopath he is. And another thing that I want to really summarize is what triggered this arrest. Um, because it turns out all the evidence that was used, none of it's new. It's all things that the police had at their disposal the entire time. Mm -mm. And right. And we're also <laughs> going to be talking about whether or not the evidence that we have suggests he's responsible for the other victims associated with this case. Because obviously, like we said, he's being charged with three of the four Gilgo uh, four murders. We expect him to be charged with the fourth, but what about the other six? And what about Shannon Gilbert, right? Yeah. So we're going to just jump right in. So 59-year-old architect Rex Huerman was taken into custody Friday last week outside his office in Midtown Manhattan. And footage of this arrest has actually emerged and shows Huerman walking down a street, not knowing his life is about to fucking end as it deserves <laughs> to end. He's wearing a little messenger bag and then he's swarmed by plainclothes officers and he's basically just taken into custody and his whole life came crashing the fuck down unexpectedly. And it turns out the reason the police opted not to arrest him at home was because they found out that he had an arsenal of weapons. He had more than 200 guns at his house. So like, mm, we're going to play this safe. We're going to we're going to get him at work. We're not going to get him at home. Well, that was so interesting because like when I first saw that video, I was like, that is so bizarre. He's literally just walking down the street. There's so many other. I mean, it's 
probably, I think, well, I think it was Thursday night that they did it, but New York is always bustling. It's always popping. There's so many people kind of going back and forth. So when I first saw it, I was just like, that is a really interesting way to arrest somebody. And it was just like the plainclothes cops were all in just like suits that swarmed him from like either every, every side. It was just a very crazy thing to watch. But you know what else it was? It was satisfying. Because, oh my God. Because for such a arrogant psychopath who's like, thinks he's the smartest guy, thinks he's gotten away with it. The, the rush of just like this. I mean, maybe he doesn't feel those feelings, but if it were me, I I would be caught off guard, but he must have felt something. I mean, during the press conference, police commissioner, um, Rodney Harrison or, uh, DA Ray Tierney, I can't remember which one said it. One of them was like, oh, he was surprised. And in this video, it just, it brings me satisfaction, you know? Well, yeah, he had, I mean, he was obviously surprised. Probably the last thing that he, I mean, I'm sure he thought he was going to get away with this forever, but, um, if he had feelings, I would think the embarrassment and the shock of it happening in public with other people kind of seeing it rather than them kind of like swarming the home is a person with feelings might feel that, you know, hypothetically, but I think this guy, I mean, the things that makes him get like his kicks, this guy does not think like me or you or anyone Mm. listening. This is like a unique kind of fucking sociopath. And we're going to get into exactly why shortly. Okay, so I thought it'd be really interesting to go through all the news that broke literally today. We're recording this on Tuesday night. This is coming out Wednesday morning. So this is like the latest of the news that we're finding out today. Now, one of the things that I find the most interesting is they're searching his home. They're, you know, getting all of the evidence they can. They're bringing out anything that is pertinent to the case. And one of the things that's kind of popping up all over these, the news articles and stuff is they're bringing out this weird doll. So they wouldn't be bringing out the doll if they didn't think it was important to the case, right, Lex? Like, they only take out stuff that they're like, this is going to be evidence of a sort. Well, they bring out stuff that they want to test because it could be related. And I wonder why they think this could be related. Because we know that he has a daughter while she's in her 20s now. And dear God, I feel horrible for her. Oh my God, I can't even um, imagine. Like, it wouldn't be that weird for a household with a you know, if she was raised in this house, my parents had toys and kept my toys in the attic or something. So it wouldn't seem that weird for a doll to be in this home unless they thought maybe it was related. And it's hard to see what's up with this doll, but it's in a really creepy like Victorian case. Yeah. It was like in a wood case that had these flower carvings on it. And it seemed like I mean, it seemed pretty big. It seemed like it was like two and a half feet tall. Like it's not like a tiny little doll. It was almost like a life-size child doll that had blonde hair, red little ribbon in the hair, dressed in red. And I can't remember where I read this. So this is speculation or non-confirmed. But I did hear that it was taken not from one of the the daughter's rooms. Like it was either taken from his weird 
uh, basement locked door room with all of the weapons in it or was taken from somewhere else in the house. So maybe that's why they thought it was interesting because it maybe was out of place. So maybe they want to test it for something. I don't know. But regardless of what it is, I think anytime you find a creepy doll somewhere in a murderer's house, then, you know, you've got to think. Oh, totally. And I think here's the thing. I don't want to get too excited about what we may learn at a trial because part of me thinks we saw this with the Golden State Killer. I mean, he pled guilty and we never got to learn anything other than what we already knew. Right. Um, I would be really interested to learn what and why they're taking these things and how they're related to things. But if he does ultimately plead guilty, we will never know. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at with that. And as far as we're going to learn so much more. And the reason we're learning about this is because people are outside of this house taking photos, you know, like the police aren't going to release this because they're trying to preserve the integrity of their investigation. So like things are going to slip out, like people are going to get tips and leads and other properties of his are being searched. I mean, he owns property in South Carolina. We learned that he owns kind of like a swath of land. And it's also been reported that that's where they found this very important vehicle that ended up being kind of essential to his capture, which is a Chevy Avalanche, which we'll get into just in case you don't already know about it, but we'll get into that shortly. They're also searching, allegedly, we think, um, property he owns in Las Vegas. Although I speculate that it's a timeshare because I Googled, well, I didn't Google, I used my software to find (laughs) out what property he had. And the purchase price was like $18,000. And I was like, he must be a timeshare. Like, I don't think that's, you can't buy a place unless he bought it. Like when Vegas was being first erected, I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense to me. He's not old enough for that. Yeah, that's crazy. I do want to go back to the house and the evidence that they're taking out of the house because another picture that was captured was this very large photo of a woman's face that looked like she had been battered or beat up or something like that. It was a blonde woman with a black eye. And you only see just like kind of part of it behind one of the officers that was carrying it. So that's like another, like what the fuck is going on with that evidence that they're taking out as well. Well, that's disturbing. And although we are planning, I mean, our plan was obviously to segment this episode and get into the specifics of what was in the bail request documents. But To piggyback on what Jack just said about this picture, I wasn't aware of that. But what I am aware of is in the documentation of the evidence they have against him, there was a list of the kind of porn he was seeking out. And it literally, one of the line items, they listed them. And one was um, blonde woman with bruised face, uh, things like that. Yeah, literally what that photo was. Or poster. I mean, it was really big. I don't know. so disturbing what it even was so disturbing so we have a lot um to learn about what they are going to pull from this man's house because another question i have is like are they going to find more trophies because we know that trophies he lives near gilgo beach he does not live far from where he left these poor victims And we know that he has visited them. Um, When he called the sister of one of the victims to taunt her, she, he said, you know, I drive by and I'm watching them rot in, in disgusting things like that. So those are actually like the women themselves. He left them intact. These are his trophies. I mean, 
think about what a trophy looks like. It's like the silhouette of a person, you know, mm-hmm. um, on a little stand where you can see your accomplishment, right? So wrapping them, leaving them where he could visit them, like these, the women themselves, as sick as this is and as sick as he is, those are trophies to some degree. And I talked to John Ray when I was in on Long Island and John Ray is the Shannon Gilbert family attorney. He's very dialed in and he brought up such an interesting point. He said another form of trophies that we already know he has is metaphysical trophies, meaning information and data he's collected on the families of these victims and that he relives the things he's done through that. I mean, photos, information where they live. You know, I was reading and I talked to Jack about this before we started that he had called the voicemails of his first two victims several times to essentially listen to their worried family members ask where they are and ask, ask that they call them back. And this is something he's doing and reveling in, you know, um, So it would not surprise me at all if this guy is so fucking narcissistic, it would not surprise me if there were actual physical trophies as well, because these women showed up to these appointments with him, with clothing, with belongings. They were found not dressed. He kept something. I I refuse to believe that they didn't. They're also searching two storage units that he allegedly has. Like, why does he need all these properties? He's obviously, he's keeping something. I mean... Absolutely. And the fact that it's like, depending on who you're talking about, there was enough time between obviously when the authorities found the bodies and from when he was, he left them there, like he could have easily been going back and forth, taking a piece of jewelry, taking a clothing item, doing something like and collecting these little things. Like I could see somebody's sick mind being like, look at the power that I have that I can go do this without any, anybody like noticing it's me. Obviously he did that by putting four of the women's bodies there. Like he never thought that there was, they were going to find it for at least a couple of years. Absolutely. And we forgot to mention one thing with the dolls. Jack, why don't you talk about why the doll could be relevant based on some sleuthing we did online? Right. So, well, Alexis actually sent me this post. I don't know if it was from a Facebook group or what it was, but apparently at least at Megan Waterman's memorial, there was a doll that was left there. It was one of those like timeout dolls that we were actually talking about it in our group chat with Jared. Jared's like, my mom has many of those up at our cabin, but it's like these little dolls that are facing, they look like they're facing a wall with their arms up above their head, like they're in timeout or like they're, you know, getting in trouble and they have to go put their head against a wall. So one of those dolls was found at the memorial, like up against a cross that said Megan on it. So could that be connected to the doll that was found? We don't know what kind of doll that really was. You can barely even tell. So if it ended up being one of those timeout kind of a doll, that is like a very strong connection or really weird coincidence at the very least. Oh, 100%. And there's also, I mean, we talked about, we talked about him in the beginning, right? We talked about what we know about him. And now we're talking about the search warrants that were executed in South Carolina on this property that he owns, which apparently his brother lives right down the way. His brother owns property there too. And his brother, you know, apparently has his own skeletons 
Go ahead. Yeah. I was just reading an article about his brother because obviously that's where his property is. So now people are digging into him and um, he was involved in a drunk driving accident where he killed somebody in 1988. And then I guess just in general, he, according to all of his neighbors, is just like a big piece of work. So he's like yelling at people. He has a temper. Like it's the same kind of thing with Rex Uerman's neighbors where I feel like me, well, he was like a little bit more friendly. I feel like people were describing him, but this guy kind of just kept to himself and just like, he just seemed like one of those angry neighbors that you would have that you're like, okay, got to stay away from this dude. So I don't know what's going on with that family. No, there's a lot to be explored here. And since we're talking about the family, again, I want to emphasize how much compassion I have for his wife and children who were also victims. Yeah. We know that his wife was out of town or out of the country for each of these murders. And that means he was literally like planning them around her departures. She could not have been involved. Obviously, his children are not involved. And um, the Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison made a statement. And he said that obviously when he told them about this, they were shocked, embarrassed, and disgusted, and went on to say that he does not believe that the family knew in any way about the double life that Huerman was living. So, like, you have to be so cunning and calculated. I mean, listen, no one thinks, I'm, I'm sure they were shocked, even if they're like, yeah, my dad's a little weird. My husband's a little odd. He does his own thing. This is beyond the, the pale. You know, you never think somebody you marry or are close to could possibly be involved. It's, it's unfathomable. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, but then again, it's like, like we said, it's like the BTK, it's the Joseph D'Angelo, like it does happen. And those type of monsters to me are the scariest of them all. Like it's not the Richard Ramirez is that like you look at them and you're like, this guy literally looks like the devil. Like these are your everyday family guy lives in a normal neighborhood. Maybe they're a little weird, but so are a lot of people like it really is the scariest thing. I will say, as somebody who covered the Golden State Killer case extensively in several TV shows, I think this guy, Rex Hurman, is way scarier than Joseph D'Angelo um, for several reasons. I'm not going to say who's the worst murderer, who's the more, who killed more people, but like Joseph D'Angelo, when shit got hot, he stopped. This guy, I mean, we've learned, was not slowing. He was still seeing sex workers. He was still doing his weird double life burner phone shit up until the day he was arrested. In fact, that's what they have insinuated, that they had to arrest him prior to having enough evidence to charge him with Maureen Brainerd Barnes's murder because they were worried that he was going to do this again. I mean, he was actively seeking out the companionship of sex workers and this shit was just getting too scary. Like, they weren't going to let him hurt anybody else. Um, Joseph D'Angelo, like, he stopped in 1986. Yeah. And he was like, wow, they might catch me. I'm going to play it cool. And then did indefinitely. I mean, they've connected nothing else to him. This guy, I mean, collecting the evidence, collecting the information on the families, like, this is going on in real time. He's reading, consuming information about himself, just... He's more like B BTK and him are way more similar, in my opinion, especially we learned today that 
upon his arrest, he keeps asking if they're talking about him in the news. That was the one thing that the, the first thing that he had asked is, is it in the news? So again, that's, that makes me think BTK, but also going back to like the burner, the burner phones and whatever, he had one of his burner phones on him when he was arrested. The one that he was using to do all of those Google searches, the one that he was using, using to still solicit sex workers like to that day. So one connected to his Tinder. The one connected to, I don't know if this is the phone that was connected to his Tinder. I mean, this, that, I believe it was the most, yeah, he was still trying to fucking use, but, um, kind of going, I know Lex, we're totally going off script, but I just have to ask you as these questions pop up in my mind, but like with that, with knowing all of this and he was still using these burner phones, he was still, you know, contacting sex workers. He was on Tinder being super creepy, like. In your mind, like, do you think those are the only four women that he had killed? Or do you think there are others? I know that we had gotten a message from one of our listeners that was talking about another time that his family was out of town being like, if I was the police right now, I would be searching into every single time that his wife was out of town and trying to connect that with any sex workers that could have gone missing during that time. Like, what do you think about that? Because I know in the beginning and throughout this whole time, it's like the Long Island serial killer. We thought maybe Long Island serial killers, but it was usually focused kind of on the one. So my thoughts are that if you look at Okay, Maureen Brainerd Barnes was of the Gilgo Four, right? The earliest victim. She was abducted and murdered in 2007. Um, He already has, by this point, that's the MO he continued with for the other four, for the other three, I'm sorry. So that is a pretty refined MO for your first one. And then to not deviate much, you know, to the next three. So... I would be very surprised if these were his only ones, unless it would be kind of an anomaly for someone to, he would have had to thought, he would have had to plan so hard and no, he would have had to have known what he liked already. Right. Like, like he, whatever happened with Maureen was something he liked so much. He made it. I, he, he like duplicated it and replicated it like almost three more times. So like, how did he know that's what he liked? How did he know that's exactly what he liked? I'm very skeptical that like with someone with such a defined MO, it was defined immediately without some trial and error, to be honest. Um, in 2007 would have meant that, you know, I don't think he started killing in his early forties. I I think he probably started killing in his thirties or twenties. Like you don't just start there with this very specific MO. Um, do I think that he's the person connected to these other Long Island serial killer associated murders that I'm not sure it's kind of like a nuanced question, but I don't think this is, I don't think these are his only crimes. I really don't. I mean, it would be insane, especially, I mean, when you think of the attention that was initially on it, right? Like maybe that would have spooked him a little bit, but if you think about how, things went cold and there was no new kind of nothing was moving forward. Somebody like him, I would think would just kind of get it back in him thinking that he could get away with everything, anything and everything. 
and at least try it again. He was contacting sex, wor- sex workers still. Like, he didn't cut off his behaviors. Like, he was still doing it. So it's like, it would blow my mind if he didn't try to continue on with that behavior. Yes, but maybe he gets off on attention. And maybe the attention after the was enough. You know, like, maybe... Because the Long Island serial killer, since since April of 2010 has been such a a national topic of discussion. So we know that the guy loves to relive his murder through the family member's pain. It could be like he he can relive it through watching Unraveled. He can relive it through watching, you know, uh, The Killing Season. He can relive it through watching, reading Lost Girls, the book. Like, Maybe it was enough to satiate him to keep him in check, right? Like, I don't know. It just depends on the kinds of things that gets this guy off. Like, really, it's it's so um, it's really hard to know. Okay, so let's actually jump into the bail document itself because that's where like a lot of the specific information is coming from. Absolutely. So I'll start with just giving a quick little summary. So the bail document. I think between the bail document and the press conference that they gave, I mean, they outlined sort of some of the same information. Um, What is the most groundbreaking shit that I learned in here was that there was a interaction with an incident really with Amberlynn Costello. Yeah. 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 And what's so shocking about it is that it was about in between a disgruntled client and she, and it wouldn't be that significant had it not happened the day before she was abducted and murdered. Yeah. So basically in the document, and we hadn't heard about this before. So this is like brand new information. No one had. Yeah. It was not public. That, yeah, she actually, I think I can just, should I read it from the bail document? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So there was an incident on September 1st through 2nd. So like the night going into the 2nd with a client And it said, after the client entered the home, a ruse was executed on the client whereby a person pretended to be an outraged boyfriend of Amber Costello and the client left from the residence while Amber Costello retained the money from the client that he had bought to pay for her services. So basically, she was being hired for sex work. He came to her place while he was there. Her quote unquote boyfriend came over, acted pissed off. And kind of scared the guy off, but kept his money. So that's kind of basically what happened that night. And they described this man as a large white male, approximately 6'4 to 6'6 in height, in his mid-40s with dark bushy hair and a big oval style 1970s type glasses. And this is where you get that ogre description. That's where that came from was that um, experience with Amber Costello. And the and witness then, described him to look like an ogre. Yes. that. But that's where we're... In all the news articles, they're like, the ogre description. That where is that, that is coming from. Yes. But then the most important part of the evidence and what I think is literally the reason why 
he even got named as a suspect as they saw his car. It was a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was parked in the driveway of the residence. So basically, this happened. He left, and then he texted her the next day being like, that wasn't nice, but I still want to see you again. And then Like, give me credit for the money I gave you. That was sort of, but I don't want to come to you because your boyfriend's there, so you're going to let me pick you up. And so then that's what happened. And she left without her cell phone. And then that was the last time anybody saw her. But if that ruse, quote unquote, never happened, they would have never seen his car and never had a description of him and was would never have been led to him in the first place, at least so quickly when they revamped the Suffolk County Police Department, basically. Yeah, this is a very frustrating thing for me to learn because... Obviously, they would have learned about this upon Amberlynn Costello's murder, right? So as soon as they found her body and started investigating is when they would have learned this, right? So this is in 2010, probably crossed over into 2011. Yeah. Um, if you knew all of this, why why did the new regime at the Suffolk County Police Department, meaning Rodney Harrison, commissioner, Ray Tierney, DA, why did they have to be the ones to do this when we had two, like several other people in charge in the last 13 years, among of which is James Burke, who was a Suffolk County, you know, police chief at in 2010 is when after Shannon Gilbert's body was found, he was put into place and installed. And then he fired all of the former detectives that were in charge of the case. He hired his own people and it's where we believe all of the things slipped through the cracks. Yeah. Um, they got rid of all the old detectives, the original detectives on this case, and hired new ones, his friends. No one was looking into any of this. This is information that solved the case. They had DNA in 2010. Um, they had the cell phone information. Because while they didn't know who these burner phones belonged to, that the perpetrator was communicating with these women with, they did have the phone records belonging to the victims. So they would have known about the the burner phones. Um, So they had everything. There's no new evidence that cracked this case. That's the most frustrating thing. (laughs) And it's like, all of this was right here. And it took so so long. It's so insane. Because I think... When we heard all of the the news, I feel like on Friday, Thursday night, Friday, it's like you assume there was like a crack in the case. You assume there was something new. And it's like, no, they solved it based on shit that was always there. And that's so fucking frustrating. Like, and also just so unbelievable that that is what ended up happening. Nothing new. <laughs> Nothing new. And, but the Chevy avalanche did crack the case and it just makes you wonder like why weren't the databases especially this is apparently like a unique first generation one why wasn't that search sooner and especially with this guy's description hey you know what the dmv asked for your height and weight Mm -hmm. um you know like that's usually on your license to make sure like you don't just look like someone and can give your id away right so your height and weight is on your license this guy has this car. Why wouldn't you search for guys between 6'4 and 6'6? Glasses is usually like the DMV usually knows if you wear glasses. So I just feel like an opportunity was missed in 2010 that was taken advantage of in a positive way now. And this is what cracked it. It's, it's truly, it's truly baffling. And it's, 
it's like, it makes me think that it's because Amber was a sex worker. It's like, oh, she, she was involved in this ruse. And obviously if she went missing the very next day and you know, I mean, there were interactions between her, this burner phone and hers, you know, the guy was like, I want to see you again. This would always have been the way to crack this case and nobody moved on it. Like it doesn't even really think that much or take that much critical thinking to really think zero of how easy it could have been. Like anybody could have done it. You don't even need a detective. Like it's pretty fucking obvious. You I would have done it. I could have. <laughs> it's devastating, but it is a testament to the new heads of the police department. Cause you know what? They did it in six weeks. Like, I- I'm sorry. The second their task force was assembled they did it, you know, um, it took just some critical leadership and some strategic leadership. And that's how easy it should have been back in 2010. No one should have had to wait this long. These families shouldn't have had to not have answers for this long. It's fucking wild. And this, you know, whatever, but should we, should we do more of the bail document? Should we, should we talk more about what's in here? Well, yeah, I wanted to kind of get into the Google searches because oh, thinking yes, about please. the new task force he, up until probably literally the day he was arrested, was among the other things that he was Googling that we can go through, was looking up the new task force. He was looking up all of the new articles on like any developments that they were getting. So he was obviously probably shaken in his boots a little bit once they kind of got, you know, the new regime was into place. Right. So, but do you want to go through the other, some of the other Google searches? I mean, sure. He was Googling articles and about the case and he was listening and consuming podcasts and watching the documentaries about the case probably like we said earlier reliving in some way um reveling in what he did and yeah i mean the porn searches he was doing we're not going to say them because it's gratuitously violent and sick and i'm not going to perpetuate any of that shit but truly vile. I mean, this guy, it really makes me wonder though, like how, how no one in his personal life caught on to it, you know, like, I guess he did it at work on non-shared computer. I mean, there's a million ways people can be, have double, double lives and they, they get away with it. I think a lot of it was done on those burner phones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes it, it have to be, I mean, he had secret phones like that he was probably hiding from his family. My question is, like, again, we're not going to get into any of the specifics, but there are a lot of things involving children that he was looking up. Like, what do you, what's your opinion on that? And like, because that could open a whole other can of worms of things that he was capable of. What I have is speculation. um, But, you know, we know as far as what the commonalities between Maureen Amber, Melissa, and Megan were. And one of those primary commonalities were body type. Mm-hmm. They were all like under five feet. They were like Tiny. they were like five feet max. Um, is that because he's a giant ogre who wants to overpower easily, or is it because they look like children? Yeah. Um, is that is that where the dolls come into play? Like we know there were child porn searches and things related to that in these porn searches. I mean, they're truly sick. This document is public. If you guys want to listen, look it up and I'm not going to say them. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I feel like that all kind of is intertwined in what he's looking for. I mean, overpowering small people and this idea that they're childlike. I don't know. Yeah. And the dolls maybe too have something to do with that, which is yeah. highly disturbing to imagine. My other question about the Google searches is like, do you think, I mean, I'm obviously not the professional in this duo of us, but do you think some searches were redacted? Because in my mind, if I was him and like, say he was listening to an unraveled or say he was kind of doing this research of other, of other suspects, he was obviously not on anybody's suspect list. Right. So I think the only person he looked up was John Bitrolf, John Bitrolf. But, like, there wasn't any, like, there was no James Burke. There was no, like, Tom, Tom Spoda. Like, there's nothing else. Do you think that could have been redacted? Or do you think he actually like, wasn't actually looking any of that up? No, I think that they cherry-picked. I mean, I think there are thousands of of yeah, things you looked up. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, like, tens of thousands. Over the 10 years, I think what they did was just cherry pick the most compelling argument. Cause what the purpose of the bail document is to argue, to keep him behind bars without bail to argue like, Hey, this is the strongest evidence we have. Oh, I'm sure he looked up. I'm sure he's looked up every, everything his search. I mean, it's probably hundreds of thousands of pages of, of discovery that they have. And it's why if there is a trial, it's not going to be for a long time because like the defense is going to want to read everything. And argue that there are other suspects or argue everything but um no i mean i think they just put the most egregious things there that help their argument of keeping him behind bars not that they needed to i mean this is such a meticulous case against him i've never seen anything like it i mean it's insane they have the cell phones of him his cell phone his burner phone and you know the victim's phones traveling from the city to Massapequa Park, where he lives when his wife was out of town and then traveling again. They have him when he's calling the the voicemails, traveling to work on his route. They, I mean, it's so ironclad. Um, but yeah, no, they just put the most compelling shit in there. I hope one day it's public because I would love to know <laughs> what else he's Googled when he was researching himself, you know? Uh, no, I'm, I would be fascinated to learn. It's oh, like t- God only knows this obsessive piece of shit totally okay so i just feel like we have a few final little things to talk about before we leave you for this episode and i mean we could go on forever (laughs) but it's like our episodes max out at around you know 50 minutes. minutes so We'll bring you more next week. I think we should keep these going, to be honest. Um, But but yeah, so there's obviously more, but we don't want to overwhelm all of you. Yeah, we're we're not Joe Rogan. Um, So one of the things that I was kind of thinking about that I didn't really see that much in the last couple of days was the belt that they had released. I'm not sure exactly when they had released a picture of this belt, but it was like on the end of the belt found with one of the victims said HM or WH, depending like on the way that you looked at it. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that there is a tie? Obviously, Hewerman, there's the H. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do you think? Okay. So talking about the belts in general. So what we know from the bail document is that Maureen Brainerd Barnes 
had been found restrained by three leather belts, one of which was utilized to tie her feet and ankles together. Um, So we know that, right? But we also know that Maureen Brainerd Barnes is the earliest victim associated with the four he suspected of being involved with. Right. We know that later on he used tape. Um, So I think maybe he realized that the belts were a bad idea. And this was his first one, right? Of the four that we know. Um, That's just an observation about the belts. Except for they were such a bad idea, except for all of, I think, the hair evidence was collected in the tape. Yes, but they also found hair in the belts. Oh, they did? But he may have realized later that he used a belt with a fucking initial in it. Like, because, okay, so I actually haven't had an opportunity to look up the names of his older family members. My assumption would be that it was his dad's belt. Yeah. Um, Don't quote me on that. I will get to it. I just got back from New York. But I do believe that the belt, I think the H is him. Um, It's either his grandfather's or father's belt. And I think probably after Maureen's murder, he was like, that was probably a bad idea to use like personal items. Personal item. Yeah. Yeah. Because after that, he used tape. And tape is also a bad idea because things stick to it. It collects so much shit. Yeah. And even if, I mean, this is really dark, but we believe he did this in his home. I mean, he did this when his family was out of town. Yeah. Um, hair is everywhere. Hair, you know, so if you're, if there's hair on your clothes or on a carpet or like you live with women, you live with your daughter and your wife, like hairs everywhere. I mean, if you, anyone here who's listening, knows this well and that was the thing too so many people were so thrown off by the fact that there was his wife's hair found on some of the victims and it's like you guys know how hair works not that it falls out and it gets stuck to everywhere especially now you know thinking that they were doing it in his home like who knows what other dna from his family members could have ended up on any of their bodies oh 100 100 percent. and it's like but we know they were out of town so it's not it's not the wife. She's not involved. Yeah. And they've said that. And they've also said that she's disgusted and embarrassed and her life is ruined. So we just got to have compassion for the wife and think that her husband's a piece of shit for putting her in this position. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I really, my heart goes out to them. No, it's unbelievable. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is obviously, you know, anything going on on social media. Obviously, I'm following all the TikToks and I'm actually surprised that I haven't seen more than I have. Like, I feel like usually when something like this happens, you just get flooded with like a bombardment of people that knew the person and stories and stuff. But I have seen a few posts, one post of a woman that went on a date with him. And I think the most surprising thing from said date is obviously she said he was creepy and weird, whatever. We all know that. But like in the middle of the date, out of nowhere, he just kind of switched and was like, do you know anything about the Long Island serial killer? And just like started asking her very specific questions like, are you a big true crime fan? Like, blah, 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 blah. And that freaked her the fuck out. He wanted her to come back home with him. She had a gut instinct and was like, get me out of here and left i mean who would have who knows what could have happened who knows if his wife was gone during that time like who knows if he was feeling adventurous in what he was capable of doing you know what i mean oh totally so 
it's so fucking scary. And then um, the only other thing that I really saw on social media that I thought was interesting is from one of his old coworkers back in the day. This was before, this is like 2005. So it was before any of uh, the go-go four murders, but she was an interior designer, helped him with his, his like kind of architecture stuff. And she was helping him redo his house. And it came down to them going into this basement area. And she said he was like super weird and was like, you can't go in there, refused to let her in, but she could go all over the rest of the house. And she said he was super weird about it. And she like remembers that to this day, it's almost 20 years later and remembered like how weird his reaction was when he, when she asked him if he she could go in there to because she was redoing the entire house so those were two things that i thought were really interesting and i am just god knows what he has in that room yeah i mean if there's a trial we'll know if there's not we'll never know you know and i uh this guy and the twisted nature of what he was compelled to do I would not i mean i am surprised by the things i'm learning but i'm also not i'm just like i don't want to no more because it's just going to get worse. And I, I honestly, these families have already suffered and I'm sad that more is going to come out because at least before it's like, they could hope it wasn't that bad. And like, this is so disgusting and terrifying and sick. Yeah. And I, I don't want to know more. I, I really don't. Um, As much as I want to learn about sociopaths and cruelty because I want to understand it better. It's, it's so beyond what I ever expected. And when we were hoping for a capture in this case, I don't know what I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't this because this is just like, it's, it's unfathomable. You know, it's, it's your worst nightmare. And to think that this guy has a family and children, it really just reminds you that anyone's capable of anything. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So sorry to get intense with all of you there at the end. But truly, I mean, this has taken over our lives in the last week. Um, Jack and I have been talking about it with like our fellow people in this industry. We've been talking about it with each other. I was there talking about it. You know, we're just astonished that finally there's a face to a name uh, to this moniker. Right. But like, also, one last thing to remind you of, there are six victims we're not sure he is responsible for. This is, I was going to have one, I had one more question for you yeah. that I that I had forgotten about until right now. So I think now, you know, there's speculation that obviously he didn't kill all of these victims, right? And yeah. it could have been multiple different people. It could have been a ring of people, you know, it, it would be very coincidental that a couple different murderers had the same dumping spot without being connected to each other. Right. And I think when we think about the Long Island serial killer and the type of men that engage into this, you know, everything that's going on, um, you know, we're talking about like the powerful, the, the politically powerful, the connected from what I think we've learned. He didn't, he doesn't seem politically connected and politically powerful. So that in a sense really kind of threw me off. And I wanted to get your opinions on that because what do you think? Because, you know, you would think, is he, you know, there's the conspiracy theories that he's taking the fall for everything that's going on. And it really is somebody that's, you know, more politically powerful and that is able to do this. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Oh, no, he absolutely did it. I mean, the evidence is ironclad. He's not taking the fall for anyone. And the argument as far as the politically powerful and the cover up, so to say, that is so it's just an odd coincidence that the police chief at the time of this investigation was a sexual deviant criminal who was sleeping with sex workers in Oak Beach. That is not speculation. That is fact. So he was doing this. And when these bodies were found, he's like, shit, fuck balls. If they start investigating over there, they're going to find out what I've been doing. And they're just sex workers anyway. You know, that's that's his attitude. So he's like, I'll not let the FBI over here. They'll especially find me out because they're looking for, you know, they can take me down. He was head of the department. No one in his own department can take him down. Right. So the politically powerful sort of theory holds up because this should have been solved. But he was like, no, no, I don't want them looking over here. And they're just sex workers. And um, I'm going to just sort of focus on something else, right? Like, I'm going to not let the FBI over here because they're going to find out what I've been doing. And all I care about is my job and my pension and my $300,000 a year, whatever he was making, right? Right. Um, As far as, I mean, this guy seems like the guy. I see nothing that suggests otherwise. That being said, though, the other six victims, I don't, I mean, I used to think it was all one. I've completely changed my attitude. I, I think, and I think it's very possible that somebody in Oak Beach it's possible, could be connected to these dismemberment cases. I really do. Um, I don't rule anything out. And I don't rule out the fact that those might never be solved because of what James Burke did. Because these cases, these these cases where we believe now we know the suspect is, occurred between 2007 and 2010, right? The dismemberment cases happened in the late 90s to, you know, Valerie Mack was murdered in 2000. Um, Jessica Taylor was murdered in 2003. We have way less access to the same information that helps solve the Gilgo four cases, allegedly solve, you know, suspectedly yeah. solve. So it all holds true to me. You know, James Burke, we could have had 10 more years. Like if we had been able to investigate this better 10 years ago, thir- I'm sorry, 13 years ago now, maybe we would have solved it. But like those cases are going to be so much harder to solve now. I think they will solve them because I think with morale being so high that the Suffolk County Police Department, I think they're going to do it. I really do. Um, but yeah, that's where I fall with all that. You know, the they derailed the investigation in 2010 and it never should have taken so long to be solved. And I think that that is a great way to finish this episode. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. And <laughs> this is literally your, this is what you do a TED talk on. I, if you could it, do a TED talk. And I could go forever, but I think Jack's right. This is instinctually an excellent place to end. And we would love, if you have more questions, if you want us to continue these into like, let us know. Um, We'll keep them coming. If you would rather get these than first degrees. I mean, while we have many coming down the pipeline and many ready this is topical. This is current. If you need a place to get all the updates, we're here for that. So just let us know either on our Facebook group or on social media. Be heard. We want to know. Yeah. And I think, well, Alexis has been doing a ton of different interviews for her projects that she's working on too. And if anybody, you know, has a connection to Rex Uerman or anything topical, 
please reach out to us if we you want to do a first like degree about it. Yeah, I mean, we would love to do a first degree just on him alone. So let us know. Um, yeah, wild ride. Wild ride. And we'll see you next week. See you next week.